0: Hello, Cameron. How are you?
1: I'm good. I'm good. All right. You ready to begin?
0: <laughs> I'm ready to begin. This is the uh, Never Stop Driving podcast. This is the podcast for those who love driving, love cars, and uh, want to keep those precious things around for as long as possible. I'm Larry Webster. I'm editor-in-chief of Haggerty Media. Next to me is Cameron Nevy. I don't even know your
1: title these days. Uh, you know, a little Shooter master of the stars. <laughs> yeah, master and none. Uh, you know, I... Uh, Uh, Right now you run our social media. Yeah, yeah. Uh, We'll say manager of social media. Manager of social media.
0: You also take some fantastic photographs via at Altered Stock on the Insta. That's where all your kids are.
1: Yeah, yeah. And if you uh, get our magazine, you can see my name all over there. Right back here. We got pages from the magazine and, uh, yeah, plenty of my my byline all over it.
0: Well, thanks for being here, Cameron. This is an exciting week in the car world um, because – on Sunday, it's scheduled, it may not happen, is the, is the Daytona 500. This is the start of the NASCAR season. I know both you and I are huge fans of this stuff. Um, I don't know. Did, did this At my house with my kid who's so into this stuff, he's like running around. He's like, you know, I think it's going to rain. They might have to delay it till Monday. I'm like, oh, it's okay. Don't delay it. You know, I don't know. Are you excited as we are?
1: I am excited. Daytona, I think I don't get as excited about Daytona. I get it more excited about the races in the middle of the season and toward the end of the season. Mm. Daytona, there's a lot of pomp and circumstance. It's a restrictor plate race, meaning that's the way they and the style that they race is a little bit unlike the rest of the season mm. kind of stands on its own. Sure, it's great to get the season going, but ultimately there's road there's races on down the road that I much more prefer.
0: Mm. You kids are <laughs> so damn jaded. <laughs> I mean, I get it. It's restrictor plate. They're I lift. mean, you've
1: been to Bristol. You've been to Martinsville. You know how great those places are. I go
0: to Bristol and Martinsville, and I'm like, I could do this. Yeah. I mean, right. I'd be able to win, but I'm like, I could drive this. I mean, I go to like Daytona, Super Speedways, and they're going 200 in those packs, and I go, yeah, I could do this. I don't want to do this. So, so I see something above and beyond what an amateur can do or you know, whatever that I, that impresses me, the speed and the noise and the fury and the energy is, um, it's pretty daunting. You don't see it on the tube so much.
1: Yeah. I will say it's a definite spectacle. Right. Yeah. And I don't think that's lost regardless of what cars there, what car NASCAR is racing or what year it's always a, uh, you know, anytime you get to 200, it's, it's quite the spectacle.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, you go to all those short track local races. So the sort of round around world is more your world than mine. The thing that I do find there, there's so much lore and tradition and that crowd is very much into it. Like Daytona, right? The track was built because there at Daytona beaches, cause that's where they started the NASCAR season way, way back with a, a, a race that went along the beach, back on the road and back on the beach. Right. You've seen yeah. some of those photos. So, but that track and that place that holds nothing for me. Like, I'm like, yeah, whatever. It's Daytona. Is it a, am I missing something there?
1: I think, I think what you need to do, Larry, is you need to go to the beach first. And they, they have a festival. They have a Turn One festival, I think it's called, where they celebrate, or a North Turn. They celebrate oh, on one you mean turns. this weekend? Yeah, yeah. So oh. what you do is you get there early. You go to the, they do a parade downtown Daytona Beach, okay. which if you know the track is kind of back where like the strip malls and stuff are. Yeah. Go to, more toward the beach to where the original racing was. Oh. And they do quite a few things to celebrate the heritage. They have a little car show in the Streamliner Hotel where they, founded nascar where all the bill. big wigs got in the got in the meeting room and said uh, that was like bill france roy parker yeah yeah a bunch of very uh you know their belts up to their nipples type deal um
0: oh that was fun i mean i love that history part of nascar the moonshiners because they all were like like right, wasn't a red void was in atlanta building all the hot rod moonshine cars and he was a big part of nascar too yeah and bill yeah. france
1: was smart enough to say hey i think we need to get all of these guys that can go fast and we need to sanction this. And so, yeah, they met in that big uh, art deco hotel, which is still standing. And oh. so they do a parade and they do a, a little car show to commemorate that. And just kind of gets into the whole pomp and circumstance that surrounds the event. And I think, you know, the one thing that races like Lamar do well is they market their stuff well and they market their heritage. Well, I mean, mm. the movies made around it, you know, mm. I think maybe Daytona could, stand to do a little bit more what do you mean
0: they do so much i mean every driver goes you know yeah we have our super bowl at the beginning of the year and it's really special and all tradition here
1: and i'm just honored to be here and i'm like
0: how much syrup can they fucking spit out
1: yeah i hear you but i guess so i'm not sure have you watched the whole documentary that just came out on netflix the nascar documentary i did okay well it's many parts it is many parts right Throughout the whole documentary they didn't mention much of the history though. They no, didn't they, they didn't talk didn't. it was very forward facing, right? And so my thought is okay, well why why did we kind of omit the past? Is that is the new NASCAR fan do they not care about that? I don't know. But I I feel like some of the most compelling stories and the reason why we care so much about Daytona is firmly rooted in the past. You know, it's where Dale Sr died. It's where they took racing and they sanctioned it, it's pulling it off the sand onto pavement. It's where, you know, the Allisons and the Arboros, uh, got in a fight in the first full televised uh, Daytona 500.
0: Right. It was yeah. a fist fight, right? Was it turn one or turn four? I can't remember. Turn three. Turn three.
1: And none of that was mentioned in yeah. the entire documentary. So, you know, I, I guess m- <sighs> my concern is I, I never want. Concern? I, I don't want any erasure of the past. Um, and I. And I think that there would be more compelling storylines and and Daytona would be more compelling as a whole if they spent more time looking at the back.
0: Okay, let's talk about this (laughs) for a second because you said it'd be more compelling. So you're saying it's not. Like, what are you saying? I'm saying... Oh, he's getting nervous um, or sweating um, over yeah,
1: here. Yeah, I am a little bit. I because I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to stay unbiased, but in reality I have such a bias Well, okay, okay. The, you
0: gather your thoughts. I'm gonna yeah, give a little sponsor yeah, yeah. message. Um, you know, this this podcast is brought to you by the Haggerty Drivers Club. This is a great club for people who love cars and driving and people who have the same thoughts. You know, you get as part of a being a member, you get roadside assistance, flatbed towing for your classic. You get six issues of a fantastic magazine that's six times a year. Uh some of you can see us on YouTube. It's Behind us on the wall, we're working on the next issue. You get discounts, access to events, you get full access to the Haggerty valuation tools, and much, much more. Please check it out. And also, um, I hope you subscribe to all of our Haggerty media stuff from uh, haggerty.com to our YouTube channel to our social channels. Now, we are also um, featured on Samsung TV Plus for free. That's channel 1194. Please Check it out, and and with that, I'm gonna try and rescue Cam over here for his uh, <laughs> inflammatory comment, like, "Oh, Daytona needs to be more compelling." I think that race is pretty compelling, but okay, make your case.
1: Uh, you know, I think that if you look at motorsports as a whole, and you look at the on-track product of Daytona, there is plenty more passing, plenty more fender banging, which is why we all tune into NASCAR. We we tune there, in. For everybody's the contact. got their own reasons. Yeah, yeah. 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 You know, if I wanted to watch Contactless Sport, I'd go watch F one. Um so- <laughs> they hit each other. what are you talking about? <laughs> so I guess my point is, you know, I tune into Daytona for the history because it is such a historical race and it is very important. I don't buy the fact that it is the best on track product. That's that's really it.
0: Okay, so that sounds jargony to me. <laughs> <When> you- <laughs> best on track product you mean the show isn't that good
1: i mean the show is okay okay, exactly i want you know i think i think the sport was made on the short tracks yeah and that's where you have the best racing
0: okay okay so you just don't like these big two mile tracks where they're running wide open flat to the floor so for the listeners that don't know what they had to do is they built these big tracks she's 40 50 years ago when the cars were they were stock they they really took cars off the showroom floor they put a made a few modifications and they couldn't go around those tracks that fast but now as technology has improved i think it was like in the 80s or something that yeah. the the cup cars what they call stock cars were reaching 220 miles an hour yeah least, bill right? elliott, laid, bill down elliott right. laid
1: down an absolute heater and like averaged over 200 around talladega and they said okay <laughs> so
0: you know uh I went to engineering school. Cam was a math major. So like, you know, the, the amount of energy in any object is the square of its velocity. So the faster it goes, the more energy it goes in. So that means when there's an accident, oh boy, it's big. So they started um, uh, doing things to to reduce the speed. And a big thing was uh, reducing the horsepower of the engines. Now these guys are racers are always making really the, the, the creativity that they display to try and make their cars go faster is part of the fun of the sport so what they did is a way to level that playing field get rid of the horsepower is they put in this thing called the restrictor plate and it basically means the engine is sucking through a straw and so they put that small straw on there the less and that reduces the amount of air that the engine can get and it reduces therefore the power it can produce so now it's really amazing they produce for a speedway race like daytona right around i think 550 horsepower
1: ish that sounds right it's about to right look. It, yeah. it changes per it race, changes right?
0: they, they they tweak it but if you put that into perspective. You know, a brand new Corvette Z06 you can get off the showroom floor is making 670. So the the race cars now have less horsepower than the street cars, which is kind of fun. And they're still doing like 190 miles an hour. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. I get it. What you're saying is, is um, I'm putting all these words in your mouth. You, you say what you're going to say. Tell me where I was going with this.
1: <laughs> I mean, okay. Aside from the spectacle of traveling, you know, 200 plus at Daytona, really all you have to do. And what Larry is making a point of is you just have to flat foot it. That's it. There's no pedaling. There's no throttle control. I see. It okay. is get out on the track and you have to hold down the pedal. Some drivers even, their feet get sore because they're just flat footed. So you, you floor
0: know? the gas and then you never lift it all the way around. The yeah, cars I mean, can just go around with the gas floor.
1: Okay. I mean, we're talking shake and bake, right? Anybody who's seen Talladega Nights knows a slingshot. Oh, I and love that's, that movie. That's what they're using. You know, they're using the draft to make their cars faster. I see. You know.
0: So that is part of the, the issue is since every car is basically restricted to the same horsepower, they all go to the same speed. Right. And they can go around the track uh, with their foot to the floor pretty easy. Then it it really takes out the skill of the driver because the driver doesn't need to navigate a turn uh, at the limit, nor does this driver need to brake. So those are two of the big three tools that are gone. So consequently, you get these huge packs.
1: Right. And if you look at it, you actually it's. I'm, I'm doubling back here because it, it there is an interesting facet to this type There's of really, racing. There's
0: really, I'm I'm getting to.
1: There are drivers that are more cerebral because cerebral. it is more like playing chess. You mean they're smarter. They're very she, smart. Just use small words. Uh, I mean. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like if you look at a, a driver like Denny Hamlin, I know you like Hamlin. I, well, yeah. Denny Hamlin is a good restrictor play driver because he is always moving. A, he's always a couple moves ahead of where he can anticipate The runs that people are getting from the draft. He can anticipate where cars are moving, where they're going to move. He is a really good restrictor plate racer.
0: Yeah, so the tactics to to win at a restrictor plate race where you'll see 20 cars, it's like a school of fish going along around the track at 190 miles an hour, are different. And um, you don't want to be the first car because the car behind gets a big advantage because it it's in what they call a draft, which is basically the front car is breaking the wind and it gives the car behind a little extra momentum to make a pass.
1: If you've ever driven behind a semi yeah. on the highway, yeah. you know how that feels. You, your, your car starts to kind of buff it a yeah. little bit back and forth. That's exactly what Larry's talking about.
0: Um, so today's interview is with um, our friend Bozy. Awesome. Awesome. I don't know how you describe Bozy. He's, he's like a NASCAR insider. He lives in Charlotte. He's also a professional mechanic. Uh, all around um, really knows this stuff. And what, one of the things we talked about in the interview was how they're actually designing cars, the manufacturers are, so that they they match up in the draft so that the, the, the bumpers, the front bumper and the back bumper sort of meet in a way that the cars can touch each other and push each other down the track, which I thought
1: was pretty fast. Yeah, yeah. For the longest time, about 10 years ago, they actually used to wax the back of the bumpers oh, so that they would slip. You know, you, you'd bump your guy and you don't want to, You didn't want to make too much contact to where he would spin. You would want to kind of slip off of there, slide off of his rear bumpers. So they actually used to apply some type of like, uh, kind of what you see on the bottom of snowboards is how I understood it uh, to make it really slippery. So it was really interesting. Wax on, wax off. Yeah.
0: Oh, that's a movie before your time. I know the Karate karate Kid. kid.
1: Please, (laughs) please.
0: Um, So um, the one of the other things that um, Bozy really got into, um, and even me. I mean, I think I'm a pretty um, knowledgeable watcher it was like these pit stops, how important they've become because um, when NASCAR's done it really well successfully is they've, they've made the cars almost identical. So then where do these teams find an advantage? And it turns out it's in the pit stops and where they're saving just a couple of tenths of a second. So these people changing the tires are like just massive <laughs> athletes. <doing stuff. laughs> yeah. 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 We, I wish uh, i known about that. Uh, <laughs> <you> know?
1: <laughs> I went down to uh, Bristol last year. And I look around and it's like the uh, pit stalls are filled with a bunch of hunks. Like a Rub. bunch of good looking, like, you know, people who used to play, you know, they're like, Oh, I used to play at Clemson. I used to play they football, at- yeah. football players, They're football players. Yeah. They're guys who almost made it to the NFL. Yeah. And they're they're football players. And if you look back even, you know, even ten years, twenty years, yeah. you had you had some serious beer bellies on pit road. You had some sure. you had some guys that maybe looked like me or you that were just kind of yeah. there to support the team and hey, hold this jack and try and jack up this car. Now they're They're serious contenders. And uh, if you look at, you know, I went to the Hendrick Motorsports compound. They actually built a small little turn going into their practice facility so that they could imitate the trajectory that the car is taking into the pit stall for their practice. Yeah. I mean, we're talking simulation to the nth degree, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, Bozy in the interview, he'll talk about it a little bit, but now that's all they do. Like the the right front tire changer, that's his full time job, and all week that's what this person practices. So, you know, because I was curious about, um, you know, as we get into the season, even though they've equalized the cars, the the cream continues to rise to the top, right? And what I mean by that are the teams. You basically have three top teams: Hendrick, Joe Gibbs with Toyota, and uh, Roger Penske with Ford. Yeah, is that fair?
1: I, I think we we might have some Michigan neighbors that might take ilk to that with uh, Keslowski, Rush, Fenway Keslowski Racing. They're on the charge. They are. Sure. The, they're doing way better. They're 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 I making they're yeah, making the gains as far as a Ford team that actually can hang with Penske. Right. Um, but yes, I would say that that triumvirate that you listed is absolutely those are the three powerhouses. Right.
0: And so all the manufacturers they have they've built or are building big technical centers in Charlotte to offer the teams their resource in terms of simulation maybe wind tunnels time. I mean, it's a uh, it's a very, it, it it looks very simplified, but it's a technologically uh, nuanced sport, I would say.
1: Yeah, I wish I had the, uh, the training facility that some of those drivers had. Some of those drivers have like gyms that would make, you know, I, Equinox look terrible. Then but, I'd have to work out regularly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess that's <laughs> the issue. <laughs> I do, um, you know, I, I've
0: come to really love the history of NASCAR. I didn't, I mean, you grew up with roundy round racing is what i call it yeah right and uh i did not i've always liked road racing but i sort of really got to appreciate the driving and the history i don't know did you read that book um i think i told you the book to read you probably ignored me um i don't don't know how to read (laughs) (laughs) james webb born fighting
1: i didn't read that okay so
0: i'll try and summarize it the best It, it, it i found this book really fascinating basically it's like a the theory is, and I don't know if it's true or not, so, you know, don't hold me to it, was that um, you had a, a lot of the the land and farmers in the south on the plains, like they own their land close to the the ocean. Sure. And on the western edge, right, they had a lot of indigenous populations, they were, they were fighting them. And on the western edge of all these southern states is basically the Appalachian Mountains. And so then what they did is they went uh, to the northern part of UK and Ireland and they recruited these sort of Scotch-Irish people to come and populate the Appalachian Mountains. And it turns out these are the people that the Romans couldn't conquer. They're just, as William Wallace is one of them. They're just natural shit kickers. And they like the hills and the hollers because that's where they came from. And this is where the Whiskey Rebellion came from. And these are these people that like to fight, that there's some statistics where that area has more per capita, uh, medals of honor from World War II than anywhere else in the country. And that was in this book too. It's, it's mind blowing. Oh. And so these are the folks that were moonshining. And these were the folks that would get together on Saturday nights to race in, in, uh, you know, little local dirt tracks. And as part of this is like, they're just going to fight and
1: yeah. <laughs> they're going to get
0: out and fight. Yeah. And you still see it. It's such a part of NASCAR, right? That, and, and, I, I get sucked into it too. Like, the ra- like, especially at a restrictor plate race where they're going to hit each other by accident and somebody's going to spin somebody out and it's going to be a big wreck and it's very emotional. And then the next thing you know, you cut to the pits and they're battling it
1: out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a, you know... I grew up with NASCAR. I grew up with circle track racing and then I found pro wrestling and I was like, wait a second, this is like (laughs) the same thing. This is like, wait, they're giving these guys a ring. It's, it's really, you know, some guys lean into it, but then you hear stories of old timers and yeah, it's absolutely that way you go into some, you know, horse track that was turned into a racetrack or some farmer plowed a circle in his field and then people started gathering. And then, you know, you get a dominant driver that, he has to literally have security around him because he, you know, roughs people up or or puts people out into the fence and you better leave quickly. I mean, there's stories about drivers hiding in their trailers as they leave the track just (laughs) to avoid any confrontation. Cause you know, those backwoods dirt tracks used to be, uh, well, not where you'd want to take kids, right? Oh, now I, they've changed. Well, right?
0: no, I'm taking my kids to the background. We're racing dirt track with our micro sprints and I see fights all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's terrible. <laughs> um, yeah, the history of it is so fun. It was about like 10 years ago. I went, I don't know why I just got, um, just really interested in, the in Junior Johnson. You know, he's oh, such a big character, a compelling character. Yeah. Right. And, um, the reason I like them you know, is Tom Wolf wrote that article for Esquire about NASCAR. And it was, I can't remember the title, it was like Junior Johnson.
1: Like the the last great American last, hero? Oh, the great American, of course. Yeah.
0: How could I forget yeah. that? And he, he um, Tom Wolf recognized this saying that uh, sadly you don't hear anymore down there. And it was when somebody be describing somebody else, like I'm, I'm describing you to somebody else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Cam, he's just a good old boy from Northern Michigan. And, um, you don't hear yeah. good old boy anymore. And when I interviewed Jeff Gordon a couple of years ago, I asked him, I was like, Hey Jeff, can we still stay good old boy? And he's like, I think we can. So maybe Cam, <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm just going to start calling you a good old boy. How you doing? Good old boy. I'd take it.
1: I think it's a term of, it's a term of endearment for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, I think a lot of that vernacular, like I just learned yesterday, Cygoglin. Have you heard that one? No, what's that one. Cygoglin is like, uh, uh Appalachian slang for crooked. Like if you're going down a road and it's kind of, you know, cantered to one side or maybe it weaves back and forth, it's uh, goglin. If the foundation is, is you know, not square. goglin. Yeah. S-I space G-O-G-G-L-I-N. goglin. Okay. So, I mean, that's, you know, that's part of the mystique. And to take this all the way back to Daytona, that's the stuff that really gets me, you know, is the history of it all. And I think that's one thing that uh, if you have any kind of tangential interest in NASCAR, go read a book. You know, there's a lot of good history and a mm. lot of good Which one do you recommend?
0: Because um, a lot of those motorsport books are so awful. Yeah. I have a heart. I mean, they're just they're a lot of passionate, knowledgeable people. They're just maybe it's just because I'm a writing snob. I read them and I'm like, oh, uh,
1: I forget the exact title. It. But Lee Montville, uh, who wrote this awesome oh, Evel Knievel well, book. He's an old sports, sports, old sports or, writer. Yeah, yeah, sports, yeah. he's awesome. Idea. He wrote one on Earnhardt. I think it's called The Altar of Speed, maybe. That one's really good. there's also um boy, they escaped me, but yeah, there's one that's like he he hit me so I knocked him back or something like that. There's a bunch <laughs> of really good old ones i I, I think uh, I'd have to go into the to the, right. uh, the archives, but you know, I mean, even well, you and I went to the museum. how cool was that? I was surprised Charlotte. the
0: museum in Charlotte is really good.
1: Oh, you talk about history.
0: Yeah. I'm not a big museum person, but that was really fun. That was awesome. A lot of stuff in there. Um, you know, speaking of dirt, Dale Earnhardt and Daytona was, you know, some of these drivers just have a, you said Denny Hamlin's thinking strategy. Who's going to make a run? Who should I get behind? But then there's this whole other aspect of the skill is like, who can read the wind and the wind's invisible. And I've often, I've often thought this is total bullshit, but it's kind of fun. Anyway, Dale Earnhardt, who died in a crash at uh, Daytona many years ago? He famously ignored a lot of the safety advancements, and one of them was a closed faced helmet. So, you know, you have this helmet with a with a with a thing that wraps around your chin. So, if you hit your something and your face hits, you're protected. Earnhardt didn't wear that. He wore this open face helmet, and you've probably seen it with the bubble goggles. And he's a pretty vain guy, but um, he used to say that with the open face helmet he could feel the air on his mustache.
1: <laughs> Did you hear that? I love that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Are you what me? what
0: he'd say and what, what and you'd think like it's not just it's feeling the wind but feeling when it changes. So he'd get up next to a car and there's some sweet spot when all of a sudden you'd be in a little bit of a vacuum and the resistance would go away and I guess he'd get the first inkling of that through the hairs on his upper lip.
1: <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. If you look in, you know, modern and that won't work in a modern car because modern cars, the cabin is pretty much sealed off. There's no wind going in In there. the modern NASCAR, in, in the modern NASCAR, car, yeah, yeah. Car, yeah, it's pretty much sealed off. But in those old old cars, absolutely. The where the air would change coming into the car, mm-hmm. you, whether you feel it on your mustache <laughs> or, uh, you know, you look at the maybe where the um, the buffeting might occur on the body next to the car. You know, if you have a cowl flap coming up or something yep. like that, it, Earnhardt was a great observer. And I think that's what it, what he meant or what, you know, the competition meant by he could see the wind. Also, there was just a mystique around him, right? So of course he has this man super, yeah, of course he has this supernatural ability <laughs> to read. Like he's oh, a yeah, superhero. Yeah, Supernatural, of yeah. course.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, fun story about, not fun story, but true story. Um, back in that, when he died, I was doing an interview with CNN and I went to the studio and they were asking about the Daytona 500 and I said, I really I'm really against these restrictor plate races because I, I thought they were, I don't know how the drivers do it. They were really, really dangerous in that the drivers only had one input to control, which is the steering wheel. All the other stuff is fixed gas and brake. Like we said, you don't use it. They're in these, these really close packs going very fast. So one minor mistake creates a, a huge multi-car accident. And then at the time they didn't have uh, cushioned walls around the track. They were just concrete. And to me, I was like, these races, they have to go. They're too dangerous. And I, I said that, and then the interview was over, and I got in the car, and I drove home. When I got home, the race had ended, and Dale Earnhardt was dead, died in the crash at um, Daytona.
1: It's incredible hindsight, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, think about Super Bowl just wrapped up last week, and yeah. you know, you look back at the old footage of, of Super Bowl players and— <laughs> They have the one bar across the helmet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, what is that, what does that do with yeah. a leather helmet? What is that doing? So, yeah, I think like major safety strides happened after Earnhardt. Yeah. The, the troubling part of it all, just like Senna and F1, and is it, it takes that, that moment. It takes that, that kind of slap to reality for the industry to say, oh, we got to change something. Yeah, because
0: the cushioned wall, it's called yeah. the safer wall, was around. Just nobody wanted to spend to install it. It's a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah, And then NASCAR
1: said, hey, if we're coming to your track, you got to have it. You
0: got to have it. So now it is there. So hopefully it'll be a safer race. I think it'll be fun. Um, You know, before we cut to listen to hear what Bozy has to say and uh, his interesting information, who is your pick? Who's your favorite? Oh
1: man, putting me on the spot. I'm going to go with.
0: And and by the way, because of the way the race is, it's, it's very much a lottery. You see a lot of, this guy Trevor Bain won once, right? Remember? I
1: believe the youngest winner of the Daytona 500. And then yeah. we never heard from him again. <laughs> yeah, right. right? So sometimes but you— Last you, year's you, winner, Ricky Stenhouse, they call him—his nickname is Ricky Spinhouse, <laughs> <laughs> And he uh, he won. You know, it is very much a lottery, but yeah. not diminishing the, uh, the win at all. I would say my pick to win is Kyle Larson. This year is the year that Larson takes home his first— Daytona 500. He's won in everything else. He's going to make his IndyCar debut later this year. Yeah. This is Larson's year. Larson takes the 500. I'm going with Brad. Bad Brad Keslowski. Yeah, right.
0: Michigan native. You know, he raced at the track that um, he started at the quarter midget track. My son did. Sam, my son, loves him to death. His awesome. team that he bought half of, he's uh, slowly improving. You know, last year they made some great strides. He's not a... He doesn't boast. He just sort of he just puts it out on the track, which I like, and um, so he's always pretty good on these restrictor plate races. Very good. So I think it's sort of it's it'd be good. I well, I just hope he wins. I just hope he has that shot in the arm and he gets some uh, you know recognition for what he's after. But it
1: should be a fun race. Yeah, I think so. I think uh, you know, as I as I peel back my maybe jaded exterior, <laughs> deep down inside, I am very excited.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, everybody, please, uh, you know, we're going to break for Bozy. Give us a rating on uh, iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next week on Never Stop Driving.
1: Awesome! Oh, and I wore my Earnhardt shirt. Oh, you did, did you? That? <laughs> the Jet Black Attack NASCAR shirts. Are Do you, you feel tougher when you wear that? I feel much tougher yeah, with the cool. mustache and the Earnhardt shirt. You know, I feel like I can take on the world.
0: I, I've been like intimidated the whole time it's we've been talking. <laughs> it
1: showed.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody, here's Bozy. Hey everybody, this is a special day. It's the Friday before the Daytona 500. This is really, to me, the official start of the NASCAR season. And with me to talk about it is a good friend of mine, super fun guy, Bozi Tatarevic. He's going to pronounce the name for you. He's, he's
2: a it's pretty, pretty close. Is that it's close? Not bad, yeah, Tatarevic. Yeah, so it's just, just got to do that itch at the end, but pretty close. What, what country is that from, by the way? I'm, I'm, I was born in former Yugoslavia, so I'm Serbian American. Got it.
0: Glad you're here uh you're such an interesting guy all these things wrapped up into one i know you're 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 really tech, technically savvy but you're also a race mechanic you're a writer you're a presenter on social media you have become an explainer of nascar and the car and the text because you have just a way of you, you dig in and you find the details and then you simplify them and in, the, in a way that the regular broadcasts don't so i wanted to i'm a gearhead it's fun to talk about. It's the start of the NASCAR season. Um, thanks for being here, Bozy. Good to see you. Uh, thanks, you were telling for the me invite. you're just battling with the Dale Jr. fans on Twitter. What is <laughs> what's happening? They're not vocal so, at all.
2: Uh, yeah. So NASCAR had its Clash race at the LA Coliseum last yeah. weekend, and this year was a little. Kind of off from previous years, just because of the weather and them actually moving it up a day. So there's been a lot of discussion of should the Clash stay in LA or another kind of fascinating or odd circuit, or should it go back to Daytona? And Dale Jr. with his Dale Jr. Junior Download Show this week said that he wants the Clash to go back to Daytona the way it was, you know, eight or ten years ago. Just do all the same stuff. Don't do any of these other things. And I basically I kind of tweeted out this morning when I saw that clip. I was like, I completely disagree because. It's just not necessary to go to Daytona and then go back to do the duels and to go back and do the Daytona 500 when you have this opportunity to try something new.
0: Yeah, it's really funny. Um, The Clash, I I am calling this weekend the start of the NASCAR season because it's the points race. It's the, the Daytona 500. They started this thing in the L.A. Coliseum called the Clash. And as you know, the track is so small, it's like. It's, it's the smallest track I think they run on. It's basically like a big—they they shove each other out of the way, and that's who the winner is, and fun. It I, doesn't mean I don't like it, but you, you brought up something really funny because Dale Jr., he's the son of Dale Earnhardt, and he's the mayor of NASCAR. Whether they want him to be or not, right, he's the voice. Um,
2: Absolutely.
0: And the the NASCAR discussion-chattering class, they've, they've so pierced the veil where half the discussion is about— the business of the teams and who needs to be there, right? Because he's thinking Mm -hmm. like Denny Hamlin, like I don't want to spend to ship these cars all the way to LA and then bring them back when I don't get a lot of prize money. There's no points, right? That's sort of the discussion you're hearing.
2: yeah. Well, the other part of it is, and that's that's one of the arguments that comes up quickly when I kind of go against his argument is it costs so much to go to LA. But the thing is, uh, the biggest costs in racing are travel. Like that's one of the biggest things. So whether you're putting... crew up in daytona for two extra nights or putting them up for two nights in uh, la it's not going to make a really huge difference because the hotels know when events are coming to town and the rates kind of level out you know when there's big things happening most of the teams have their own private planes or charter planes so there is a little bit of extra jet fuel but like that's negligible but the big thing for me is the old format of the clash at daytona was super speedway racing and One of the examples I used, I think, was 2018 or 2019, there were five cars that finished, basically, because everybody else wrecked out at some point because the nature of super speedway racing is, you know, you're drafting, and if you get out of line, bad things happen versus the clash, you know, or any of these other types of tracks. There's some bumping, and, you know, you might destroy a splitter or a diffuser or some body panels, but you're not wrecking an entire car. So I I really would like to sit down and just do the math of, like, all right, if there's a 60% chance, that a car is going to get wrecked. (laughs) This is the cost, you know, if we're going to go down that path of like, hey, it's going to cost this much or that much. And the the way I look at it is the clash or any of these, any type of preseason exhibition shouldn't really be a practice event for Daytona or whatever. Like you said, it should be its own thing where it's just a fun little thing to give people a taste of NASCAR. Because the season doesn't really start until this first points race at the Daytona 500.
0: Yeah. Okay. I didn't think about that. Yeah. Because Daytona is this—it's a two-mile plus banked oval, and the drivers go around with their foot on the floor; they never lift, so they're in these huge packs. So if you get in a wreck at Daytona at 190 or 200, it's bad. Versus at the LA Coliseum, you get in a wreck at 60; it's like, like you said, it's like eh, yeah, it's a couple thousand. bucks. And that's,
2: and that's that's the thing is. The, the big, big focus of this next-gen car, if we're going to get into the business of NASCAR, is save teams money. And the way they try to do that is by making the car modular. And they've had to work some of that back just to improve safety. But yeah. at a place like the Coliseum, you're going to wreck kind of external components. So splitters, diffusers, hoods, bumpers, things like that. Body but ride, at a yeah. big crash at Daytona, you might wreck the center section of the car. Which is the safety cell? So it's like the tub of you know race cars and other series, and that is the unique identifier for each car and kind of the centerpiece of it. So if you damage that to a certain extent, you either have to buy a brand new tub, which is you know theoretically a building a new car from scratch, or you have to send it back to be refurbished for tens of thousands of dollars. Just metal. Uh, yeah,
0: that's that's one of the things I want to talk about. This is the third year of what they call the next gen car, right? And this yeah. is a big cultural sea change for NASCAR because what they did is they sort of said, okay, everybody's going to run the exact same car. You can make your own engine, but you're going to be the exact same car. If it doesn't say you can do it in the rules, you you cannot do it. And the cultural change is NASCAR has always celebrated these people that really they cheated, but they found some gray line in the rules. And Smokey Eunuch, you know, you can go right on back. Ray Evernham I mean, these guys were super creative and it's super fun. Now... Anybody gets busted with something minor, and they they just drop the hammer. So, third year, where where are we on this? Has this been a good thing, a bad thing? You want to explain it more? I mean, I'm sure you've been all up in this too, right?
2: Well, uh, the the fortunate thing is that generally, I think it's been positive for the growth of the sport. So, talking about Denny Hamlin and him investing in 2311 Racing, bringing Michael Jordan in, and on the same note, you know, Justin Marks who you know, was a racer in NASCAR and in IMSA and, you know, did a bunch of stuff, deciding to invest back into the sport by purchasing the assets of, you know, Chip Ganassi Racing and starting Trackhouse and expanding that. So the next-gen car was really kind of the catalyst for a lot of those moves and some of the other things we've seen with, you know, these one-off uh, appearances from drivers like, you know, Kamui Kobayashi or Jensen Button or all these, you know, like international stars mm-hmm. that are trying stuff. Yeah. But it's been a process of very, very kind of hard growths to get there. Because anytime you have something that's a decision by a committee, it's it's very hard to, you know, kind of work work things out and have a you know perfect product to start out with. So yeah, it's it's been a kind of a, a two-pronged deal of of this far as far as the things that need to be worked out of safety and performance on track. Because once you make cars identical, it makes it very hard to pass. Yeah. And obviously they have different engines and different aero packages, but even those are regulated. And then as far as safety. Because they made a lot of these components stiff to be reusable and to save money and to encourage new owners to come in, what they found out is when drivers crashed, they were the softest part, you know, in oh, the yeah. car. So things like <laughs> the rears and front, so the cars didn't, you know, didn't crush like you know with crumple zones like we used with pas- used to with passenger vehicles. Yeah. So they've had to make changes with that, and they've had multiple iterations of these things. And last summer, you know, they released a huge update that covered a lot of stuff on the front clip and the rear clip and even the size of the cars. But as far as the performance aspect of it, what's happened is that they've been tweaking things on the aero side. Yeah. But this new car, outside of all these other factors, brought these you know eighteen-inch single lug wheels that are very wide. That end up with very wide Goodyear tires, and Goodyear wants to show that you know their product performs on track. So they made them harder than you know what they anticipate would be the point where they would have issues, just so it looks good because they're spending the money to market it. Yeah, but right. that's not causing enough wear during some of these runs. So what oh my happens gosh. is people, people end up even. So, you know, if you if you only have, you know, four tenths or half a second of tire fall off over a, you know, a run, then there's not enough people that are changing pace to be able to make passes. And that's kind of what's been this whole discussion about performance on track. I see.
0: Okay, I want to unpack that real quick. Is, is, since this car is identical, it means that a team... Uh, with many, many years of experience running NASCAR, does not have the advantage it once did. So, like you said, Denny Hamlin, he's a he's a really great driver. He partnered with Michael Jordan, the basketball player, started a new team. This other guy, Justin Marks, started something called Track House. And, I mean, that's a fun, fun team. It's like the Red Bull of NASCAR, right? It was that driver that went around the outside of the wall, Ross Tank. super-duper yeah, fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then now that we have this car and they're tweaking on it and – You know, the business of running a team is changing, and they really want to get into, from what I can hear, is this franchise model, very similar to the NFL, where Mm -hmm. it's a collective. You get a spot. You get a team. There's a fixed number of teams. Formula One, we know, is already this way. And these are some of the fun chatter, because all these drivers now have podcasts, and that's all they talk about. They bitch about the (laughs) $50,000 they had to spend on a front (laughs) splitter.
2: It's so i mean it is yeah yeah it's so
0: hilarious. i mean the, the performance advantage that you talked about one of the things that they're trying to balance is a show where you don't know who wins versus a lot of action i did not realize this what had happened is they have goodyear tires it's the only tire and they don't wear enough over 20 30 40 laps where that one car with fresh tires is much faster than a car with old tires is that what's happening
2: that's that's a big part of it so that's like Whoa. them Talking about these short tracks and some of these places where they're trying to find solutions to make the racing better, and talking about Aero at short tracks, which, you know, going back to the Coliseum example, that's an extreme, but a lot of these tracks aren't that much bigger if you go to Martinsville or Bristol or some of these places. And yeah. in the past, you really wouldn't be talking about Aero at these tracks because they didn't have speeds significant enough to be combined with the type of bodywork they had for Aero sure. to make a huge difference. Obviously, If you're going two miles an hour, 200 always makes a difference. But it's, you know, a scale of like this much. But now with the way these bodies are, with the way the tires are, with the way the gear ratios are set up, it's like everybody's, you know, very, very close to being even. So one of the big things they're doing to start this season, uh, the first short track race, which will be at Phoenix in March, it's they're like the rear diffuser. They did a complete redesign. So they dropped a bunch of the strakes off of it. Uh, basically their goal is to try to remove some of that downforce from underneath the cars and also kind of to clean up the wake of these cars. Because even at these smaller tracks, there's enough dirty air now that combined with, you know, the tires not wearing as much, the cars are just stuck wherever they end up unless, you know, there's a yellow that comes out or something. Some other abnormal event happens that allows them to, you know, swap places.
0: Yeah, I know. I hear all that and everybody says it. I just don't buy it. I'm curious if you do, because my son and I were, were sort of like having our little, we're picking the top four at the end of 2024 who we think is going to be yeah. same teams are always at the top Gibbs well, with their Toyota Penske and Ford and Hendrick's and Chevy right you yeah. can you know the top four drivers that are going to fight for the championship in Phoenix at the end of the year are more than likely going to come from those three teams
2: or not what do you think I think so that's the other thing we talk about making things equal with the car and yeah. you can do that to an extent but it's the resources behind the scenes now and the small incremental stuff that makes a difference. So talking about those powerhouse teams, they have still have huge engineering departments. Uh, they they you know bring in some of the best talent in the series and they have huge pit crew departments, which with the way, you know, some of these races are structured, your pit crew can win you the race. As we saw with Kyle Larson, you know, winning the championship a few years ago, obviously, sure. you know his performance on track got him there 99% of the way. But once you got to that last pit stop, you know, what we call the money stop, it's the pit crew that made the difference because with track position being so important, if you can get a pit crew that can first be consistent, but also be just a little bit faster than the next guy down, and they can gain you a spot or two on pit lane, you know, during a stage break or caution, that's worth you battling 60 or 70 laps on track because that's the same amount of effort it'll take you to get there. So that's, you know, talking about, these, these places, that's what makes a difference. And that's something that I spent actually the last week doing is I have a big spreadsheet now of all the pit crew guys that are, you know, at all the teams okay. and where everybody's moved in and off, off season, because yeah. that's going to be a big focus for me this year. And it's, you know, something that I'm personally attached to just, you know, doing pit crew work over on the IMSA side. So I know a lot of these guys firsthand and I know what they deal with yeah. and I know how significant they are to the race. And I think it's a, an underreported story when it comes to this big picture of stuff. So this year, you know, one of my goals is I want to track where everybody's going. I want to track, you know, who's fastest. I want to try to track, you know, times on a week by week basis, see who gets better, who gets worse. And then see if I can find little unique traits. Because if you look at some of these crews and how they train, everybody has a slightly different approach. And because that's become so important for track position these times mm-hmm. have been pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed down where from you know, the introduction of the car until last year, they've cut like, I think, almost two seconds off a of four-tire change. So you have, I've, I've been to some of so these practices. So you do practices. four tires
0: and fuel in about eight and a half seconds, right? Yeah, and That's I've amazing. been to
2: practices and witnessed a 7.6-second four-tire change.
0: <laughs> yeah, so it's Okay, like, wait, let, let's uh, slow down for yeah, a second because yeah, you yeah. brought up something I didn't think about, which is huge, yeah. right? All the cars yeah, are yeah, even. Yeah. Now the yes. pit crew that gets you out three tenths of a second faster than the next is a position on track which is hard to pass so that's hugely valuable and uh i've witnessed these pit crews they all go over the wall with they all have their own cameras so they can see is the wheel tight or not so every one of those is like a field goal kicker with two seconds to go to win the game is that the the right kind of pressure for these folks that
2: that that is a great analogy and that's is really? like the cameras, yeah, the cameras that, that they use to see if the wheels are tight have yeah. multiple purposes because most of these powerhouse teams are using AI now to analyze their pit stops. They so are. Whether they're doing it, they're, whether they're doing it in house or whether they're using one of these external companies, like um, Asphalt Analytics is one that I've worked with. But basically, all those GoPros plus overhead cameras mounted on the pit box are capturing video, and yep. that AI is analyzing each step. So you're, and we do some of that on the IMSA side to an extent- Is this real time? Uh, so that's that's the difference between what we do versus what these big oh. the powerhouse NASCAR teams do is we can take video footage and submit it after we're done with the race versus some of the powerhouse teams. This footage is getting uploaded directly to the cloud as the pit stop is happening. So by the time they get to the next pit stop, they can analyze all these little bits and pieces of what they did and it, whether they need to change something. And if the driver's unsure of what the car is doing, they can go back and rewind through it and make sure that, you know, all right, all the wheels are tight. We made this change. So if you ask for, you know, they have weight jackers in the back. Now, if we ask for a weight jacker change, they can look and see that make sure that the handle got turned X amount of times or whatever else. But, you know, it's it's the the kind of stuff you see out front is, all right, we're looking at this footage to see if the wheel is tight. But they're analyzing it to see what's happening. And then when they get back to practice next week, it's like you know, going to football and looking at a game footage. All right. This is what we did. And they sit in a room for a couple of hours and just analyze all their moves from all their pit stops from the entire race. Plus, whatever race they're going to, they'll look at last year's footage now since they have that available.
0: So, these poor dudes, and they're mostly men because they're like, you know, they were, from what I understand, these tire changers in NASCAR and they're carrying these heavy fuels. The tires are 19 inch wheels. They have used 19 inch wheels. 18th. They're not 18s. Okay, sorry. They're yep. not light. And so, every movement, Every millimeter of arm movement is analyzed like as soon as they're done.
2: Yeah, yeah. And Amazing. it's so yeah, and it's it's all in small like segments. So yeah, it's you know, you're yeah. running to the car, you get wheel on, there's you know, this took three tenths of a second. Wheel off, you know, this took that many seconds. Nut tight, that took that many tenths of a second. Run around the right. car, that took that many tenths of a second. And then each type of position has different rankings. And there are a lot of Former, former football players, former basketball players. There's, you know, there's guys that I know that played in the NFL for a year or two and just, you know, didn't really find a spot where they made it. So they got mm-hmm. recruited to come, you know, come be, you know, a tire carrier or, you know, operate a jack or whatever. And you can wow. usually tell where people came from based on the position they're doing. And that the interesting thing is that even on our side in sports car racing, where pit stops aren't as significant, it started to infiltrate it there. So I posted a picture the other day of kind of our crew and me, and Derek who's like my backup tire carrier and my front tire handler or you know 62 I'm like 220 he's like 250 and then our tire changers are like <laughs> 5859 five, 150 160 That's because yeah yeah you need you need the tire carriers and the NASCAR you know the people around the jack to be able to carry 250 50-pound tires yeah. and you need the, the 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 tire changers that are running the wheel guns to be fast and agile cuz all they got to do is get around the car stab it fasten it pull the tire fasten it again and then back get back quickly and one of my uh, one of my favorite, favorite people and the moves that he does is Michael Hicks. Uh, he's a Joe Gibbs racing rear tire changer. I've known him for a while. And he's actually one that's come back, come through from a traditional uh, path because he was a mechanic that became a tire changer. And then he was so good that they're like, we don't want you to do mechanic work anymore. We just want you to solely change tires. <laughs> and uh, holy but- smokes. Yeah. But he's, he's, he's uh, about my age. He's been doing this for, you know, five luck. So he's, he's been doing this for 15, 18 I, years. I think
0: now, I mean, I, like I'm getting all nervous and sweaty thinking about these guys, Posey. Yeah, and when yeah. you sit on the other side, you do it in sports car racing where the money's not as huge so that they're not training 24 seven. They're not, this is not the only job they do. You prepare the car as well. Right. But yes. what I'm thinking about is I think it was one of the NASCAR drivers, Denny Hamlet or something last year, They've raced all season to get in position to win the championships. The total budget they spent is 25-30 million bucks, right? And mm-hmm. one of these one of these tire people doesn't like un, like doesn't tighten it like an eighth of a degree enough. Boom.
2: Yeah. Race that's is fun. over, championship's yeah. over.
0: Like everything is mm-hmm. riding. I mean, that is a ton of pressure.
2: Do these it's, guys it's get paid? Well? Uh they do get paid decently well, so that's, you know, one of the other things with, you know, crew members and pay and stuff. That went to a really high price, uh, in you know, maybe five or six years ago, six figures for certain guys. And then as the next gen car came, people were like, Oh, this is single lug, it's not gonna be such a huge deal. So harder. a lot of teams, yeah. Well, that that's you know, that's what ended up happening. But a yeah. lot of teams were like, this isn't as hard. So we'll cut pay rates down and try to recruit as many young guys as possible because this will be simple. You know, we had five lugs over here, now they just have to do one. And you know, we went from a steel wheel to an aluminum wheel, so you know, we lost 10 or 15 pounds. But what they found out that, you know, as the pit stops have become significantly more important, now they've had to ramp those rates back up. So that's kind of going back to these powerhouse teams is the high value guys are, you know, are, are getting paid well. And those teams are performing in addition to all the engineering resources, the mechanics at the shop and all the all the little things. Because, you know, talking about NASCAR, you know, making cars operate in a tight box, well, these big teams will build the entire NASCAR inspection station that travels from track to track inside their shop. So this is built by Hawkeye oh, yeah. that does you know, football, tennis, all these other things. So Hawkeye yeah. will glad you, gladly sell you the, in a replica of the exact setup that you know, NASCAR is using at the track. So these teams, when they set up the cars at the shop, they'll run them through the Hawkeye trying to get to that last you know, hundredth of an inch or whatever on the bodywork or the suspension or whatever yeah. else to make sure that they're in the window. And that's not only for the mechanics and engineers that are making those adjustments, but these yep. top little pit crew guys, once the car is adjusted for each specific track, will go in there and check the droop, check to see how the wheel will go on, check to see how things will fasten, because what many people don't realize outside the sport is depending on the track you're going to, when you hang that wheel on the car, you're trying to stab it into a different position. So whether it's on a short oval or a big oval or super wow. speedway or a road course, you know the big things are you know camber will go one way or the other if you're going from sure. oval to short course, Uh, short track, but it's also about position, you know, because you might use a different spring and damper rates for, you know, a super speedway versus a short track. So the wheel might not droop as much or it might droop to a certain extent. And that's where you get these powerhouse teams that have these resources and time to invest into checking things like that versus smaller teams that might have a crew that they're renting from, you know, an agency, because there are pit crew agencies where, you know, there's a guys that go and train and then you get rented out to, you know, midsize or small size teams that can't afford to employ people in house. So it's like a temporary labor for pit crews. I would do that yeah. for a summer. Yeah. Am I so too old? I, <laughs> uh, I mean, you, you should try it out. I am actually, so that's, I, last week, I, I had a conversation that about that. And I think that's gonna be one of my goals for this year. Uh, yeah. Cause I think I wanna do, I wanna try to do a, maybe a truck race or an Xfinity race. So. Uh, I know one of the guys that runs one of the schools, I'm uh, starting some discussion to see if I can go train for a couple of months and then have him rent me out to like a small truck team or something, just go do a race for fun. I think and I just, fun. just to see what it's like, because it's the, the, the concept transfer over, and I've been fortunate to spend time with a lot of the pit crews uh, on the NASCAR side, a lot of the top pit crews, just uh, from some of the content projects I've done, and then, you know, just over time we've kind of built connections so i've had you know the opportunity to go practice on you know a cup car and all this other stuff it's not that much different than gt3 cars but the xfinity and truck stuff is where like kind of it's a huge huge difference because you got steel wheels you got five lugs and all this other stuff sure Uh, so it'll be it'll be fun so that's that's one of my goals for this year is to go you know learn that skill set become fast enough where you know they can sell me to a team and then just go do a race or two and see how it works
0: that sounds really fun. I mean, uh, so these teams, the powerhouse teams, the ones with the money, we just talked about it: Gibbs, Penske, Hendricks. There's others, but they're they seem to be the most consistently successful at it. They're they got the better pit crews, so they're saving a tenth or two each pit stop, and there's six or eight pit stops a race. I don't know. And then the other thing, they are able to devote endless engineering resources to whatever little minute advantages they can do. And in racing, the game is. What you see is something, well, that that doesn't make any difference, but you do it anyway, because it might add up to a mm-hmm. collective half a tenth per corner. And that like like I love racing, but I kinda hate this this game of like <laughs> anal retentive, they gotta be now. You know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah. taping all what? the seams, like yeah. right? Like and yeah. now the cars are the same. It's even harder. So all these little picky details matter. Like, what are you hearing? Like, what are they doing?
2: Where are they finding some of this extra speed? It's 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 all the little stuff. So one of my favorite things is doing split brake compounds because there's not a lot of parts that are open uh, in NASCAR. But the brake pad compound, you can do whatever you want with it. Oh, I and see. Traditionally, okay, yeah. traditionally, if we think, you know, like, you know, racing it's like, all right, you got this compound and you put all four of the same type of pad on each corner or you put the same compound on the front, same compound on the rear. But in, you know, in the cup series, what they found is that they can each corner can have its own individual compound and they can make the brake pads be something that alters the handling of the car. Sure. And that's like, just like, so if you have an engineering department that can sit and, you know, do this research and test all these different theories out, um, that's going to be, you know, a difference maker there where like you may not, be allowed to do something with the shock or you know spring because it's sure. in a certain box you can substitute to an extent with brake pad compound and there's also other little things and people that try things that they think are going to be under the radar i mean one of the big things we saw last year was uh the number three crew chief getting fined and suspended for a couple of races and austin Dillon losing points because of a turnbuckle so you know it was this like week, tape or something like that, wasn't it? Well, no. Well, this, this, you know, there, was, there was a couple of penalties for tape, too. That was <laughs> the year prior. This was a turnbuckle. So to, to explain just how this works is, and this will be significant at Daytona next week, is the, uh, the front splitter and the rear diffuser on these cup cars have these stays that have a turnbuckle in the middle. Oh, yeah. So what happens is uh, NASCAR has minimum height rules, has angle rules, all kinds of little stuff, and then has an underbody scanner that, where it's, things have to be consistent and centered. So what you do is you adjust this turnbuckle, you turn it to lift or raise, you know, lift or lower the splitter, and then you get to, to a certain point and there's two lock nuts to lock it in place. And then you go through technical inspection. And if you pass technical inspection, you know, they impound your car, you can't touch it any longer. So mm-hmm. what it looked like the number three crew did is those turnbuckles, instead of putting lock nuts on each end, they put, um, they, they glued or epoxied the nuts to the turnbuckle. So it was wow. infinitely movable. It never locked. So what they would do... What you could potentially do, let's say, I don't want to put words in their mouth, but what you could potentially do, if I was a crew member working in that wheel well, is you could set it to a certain extent to, you know, pass inspection. And then once the race started, when you want to do that tire change, you can stick your hand in there and crank the turnbuckle a few times, you know, to adjust the splitter height, and then do the race like that. And then on the last pit stop, crank it back to adjust it back to a legal height, put the tire on, and go. So there's stuff like that. Now you know that people look for little tweaks and. Because of the way these things are regulated, you know, once they catch you, there's big fines because they want people not to do this, and you know, they want to throw the book at anybody just to set an example.
0: Oh, it's amazing! And that—that that I think you said was the most creative cheat, cheat of
2: 2023. Yeah, that's that's the, like the, the most interesting thing. Well, the most creative that got caught, as you know, that, that got I, I can think of. Yeah, and but there's and other I, Wait, wait, because, let's just stop yeah.
0: and, and think about this for a second. The most yeah. creative cheat that got caught is the epoxyed regular nuts instead of lock nuts to a turnbuckle. yeah, yeah. yeah
2: I mean, that's, <laughs> that's not something you think about but I know splitter splitter height has such a huge impact you know, a lot of tracks and it's something that you know that, that could have an effect on performance but there's I would say once or twice a month NASCAR releases a rule a bulletin for its rule book and there's usually 10 to 15 sometimes 20 entries and that's wow. sometimes that's that's safety stuff but very often it's things that they saw in inspection. That maybe weren't technically legal that they wanted to make illegal on paper, and there was a bulletin that came out last week. And there's a bunch of like you know kind of preseason stuff of like hey this equipment's not legal you know you can use this type of glove or whatever like just routine stuff. But one of the things that caught my eye is that they put a limit on the amount of refrigerant that you can use in driver cooling systems. So. Driver cooling, you know, they have helmet blowers and they wait, have cool wait, shirts. Ex- just yeah.
0: explain what yeah. this is. I'm not sure everybody's aware yeah. what these yeah. things are. Go ahead. Tell so, them. What is it?
2: So, so typically uh, in the Cup Series and most major racing series now, you have a helmet blower. So that's a box that has a little fan and a pelletier cooler or has some kind of refrigerant in it and has a hose that leads out and blows cool air into the driver's helmet to keep them cool during the race. Yep. The secondary cooling is what's called a cool shirt. Where you have a shirt that has a bunch of coils in it, and it hooks into a little pump and a little cooling unit with refrigerant, and basically circulates cold water with a little coolant yep. in it to make your core temperature go down. So the most two problems yeah.
0: there's two problems with this car, right? The the, the the cockpits are really really hot, and the air inside is typically like is it CO carbon monoxide? It might be better with the with the thing, but I know a lot of drivers after a lot of years report some some really big health problems sucking all those fumes in right so that's what these systems are designed to combat
2: yeah so that's that that's part of it too so these helmet blowers typically nascar will also have a co2 filter and fortunately since the introduction of the car they've actually made a bunch of strides with that you know kind of cooling and cleaning up of the air and stuff and with the way these cars are sealed off inside now most of that's kind of been fixed it's better okay yeah. yeah yeah so like as far as like the co2 perspective of the last like you know few years they fixed that with closeout panels on the inside and the way these hoses are routed and all this other stuff but while they've been doing that they've kind of opened up some ductwork and cooling things just to help drivers but teams were like well this is an open area <laughs> so let's see what we can do here so a lot of like the rules last week were specific placement of hoses now where ductwork can be located but the one that was most interesting to me was this refrigerant so now you think about this it's a little box that's maybe you know, six inches long by maybe three inches tall and three inches wide that has a uh-huh. little bit of coolant in it and an electric pump that pumps these shirts and the same thing kind of for the helmet blower. So you, you wouldn't think that there's a lot of coolant or refrigerant that's, you know, required to be in these boxes. But obviously, at some point last year, they saw somebody that had a big refrigerant box for some reason. And now they're like, all right, this is the limit that you can have because <laughs> they don't want people messing around with it. And the first yeah. thought that came to my mind is, all right, I can fill this box up with refrigerant. It looks like something legitimate at the start of a race, but if it, you know, accidentally leaks out, then I'm dropping weight here, you know, on something that's sitting on a shelf oh, behind I me. Oh, I see. And you know, so it's, it's, you know, I, that's that's the first thought that came to my mind when I saw these limits. But for every rule that exists, there's probably you know five or ten things that they haven't even caught or seen yet. And that's that's you know that's that's the that's the fun thing for me still about all this stuff, even though it looks so you know. It's all, like, in the same box from the outside. There are so many little bits and pieces that people are doing still to find performance.
0: It um, The lengths they will go. Like, um, you talk about a type of person, and, and you hear it in the pits, like, oh, I'm a real racer, right? There was a long time ago I realized I'm not a real racer. I'm not going to stay up all night with a fish scale to figure out how much drag my car has when I pull it. I'm like, yeah, it's good. You know, and a real racer is going to be so competitive that they're going to take every little step that they can. Right. And that's sort of what we're talking about. It's like who's going to who's going to chase the most details to the ground? And that's the team that's likely going to win. Do you think um, one of the benefits of when the cars are all equal is that, um, you know, we always say that that in motor racing, it's 85 percent car, 15 percent driver. Is that ratio yeah. skewing more towards driver now that the cars are closer? Because, you know, we talked about some cars are stronger, but in general, that
2: they're all pretty close, right? Is that, is that yeah, changing? That's, I, think, I think that that is, uh, to an extent, something that's different in this formula. And okay. it's, it's about, I would say, you have like the top 60% of the field that's fairly close, and then the rest kind of fall off. And that partly mm-hmm. is, you know, the top teams can afford brand new bodywork for every race versus you know smaller teams might reuse bodywork that might not be perfect the top teams will have engine contracts with the big OEM or OEM affiliated engine builders versus smaller teams might not be using the same engines yeah things like that but the top 60% i think of the you know of in the cup series especially it's very very close so there's a lot of driver skill and crew skill that's involved versus yeah. just the car because yeah. everybody's operating with similar things and NASCAR has tried to kind of limit you know, some of the testing and some of these other things that, you know, teams would just dump a bunch of money on to find those little tents here or there. So a lot of these teams and organizations now rely heavily on simulation tools. And that's one of the big things that, you know, these new entrants, if they're not closely affiliated with an OEM, even though the car is technically equal, if you don't have those simulation tools, you're going to be left behind uh, and not be able to get to that top tier. I see. Yeah, yes. And that's... Yeah, yeah.
0: And that's so- if you're racing a Ford, you get access to Ford's computing power and their tools yep. and all the simulation stuff. Plus, they've got a a pretty crazy simulator there in Charlotte that you Correct. can use and drivers train on. Right. So this is sort of what
2: you're yep. talking about. Yeah. Yeah. That's and that's part of it. so driver in the loop. Simulation is not only for driver training, but for the tools they have for the cars themselves. So, you know, they'll they'll have, you know, these shaker rigs and all these other things that, you know, other tools that they'll use to measure the cars. And then when they do have these limited test days, they'll put load cells and strain gauges and things on the car to collect data. And they'll build a virtual model and they'll also build virtual models of the tires. And what they'll do is the engineers will go to Ford Performance, the TRD or to GM Performance, which all have facilities here in the Charlotte area and will simulate all that. And then once they feel like they have a good setup or a good model, they yeah. can bring their drivers in and say, hey, drive this virtually and tell me what you think about it. And they can make adjustments on the fly. Yeah. That's Part of that is, you know, in the Cup Series, most of the teams are affiliated with an OEM, so they have access to that, sure. but there are, there are tiers. Yeah. And, you know, part of that is, uh, you know, if you're, you know, kind of a tier one or a tier, depending what the OEM calls it, you get more time on the simulator, you get more of the OEM engineering resource assistance and all this other stuff. So it, it all, you know, it, it all matters and it all adds up where, you know, this computing power. You know, you may not think about it, but that's also what's kind of moving the needle on track. And in yeah, addition I, to, yeah, yeah,
0: it's. I mean, it's really interesting because um, I got a chance to drive the Ford simulator in Charlotte and this is for their GT car. And so we get on the simulator in there and we're, we're driving the car on the sim. They have a, a replica body and the thing moves and it shakes and it does all this. And you got somebody in your ear and, yeah, you're flat through there. Blah, blah, blah. And I thought, OK, this is really good version racing. And then I got in the real car, and I was like, "Oh, okay." The car feels just like a video game now. <laughs> <It was> like,
2: <laughs> well, that's that's <laughs> the, the
0: car thing. has yeah. evolved to be the yeah. video game rather than the video game evolved to be like the car. That was my conclusion. I know that yeah. nobody really talks about it like that, but that car was the most the real car was the most lifeless thing I've ever driven. I had no idea what was happening through the brake pedal. Didn't really get a feel for anything else. And 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 backing up my point they put these little lights at the front of the fenders that tell the driver if they've locked a wheel during braking because you can't feel mm-hmm. it through the brake pedal the thing is mm-hmm. just lifeless so, so it's a kind of interesting thing that i haven't heard anybody talk about does it make any sense to
2: you oh yeah yeah so i've, I've, I've been fortunate enough to, to get in a you know a full driver in the loop sim and one question that i'll have to ask you uh is did you feel like your eyes were always just behind trying to keep up with the motion that was happening. Or did you feel comfortable inside the simulator? Cause that's, that was kind uh, of my impression.
0: I felt comfortable inside the sim. That was no yeah. problem. It was the, it was the controls. Um, you just couldn't get the, um, I'm very much a, you know, I'm old. I got started in go-karts. I like the seat of the pants. I like feeling like, Oh, that tire is about to lock up. I mean, I'm sort of like used yeah. to that. And, this yeah. new generation of drivers i mean they set up the car so the brake pedal is like pressing against the wall it doesn't move and it, and it changes the pressure just like my kid's sim setup steering's mm-hmm. really lifeless and how they drive these things as fast as they do they obviously do but it it just didn't feel i don't know something's totally changed the car wasn't even Bose; it wasn't even like you know i've got a pretty modern uh, 911 cup car fast car yeah. 500 horsepower yeah. weighs 2600 pounds it moves around a lot rolls a lot slides a lot that four gt
2: on <laughs> rails and that yeah. was
0: only 10 years difference so things have changed yeah. really really quickly
2: yeah no that's that, that was my impression so i've i've i had the fortune to drive that ford sim here yeah. uh, in concord in charlotte and uh, i think i did gt4 at line rock or something and oh yeah for oh, yeah. me perfect yeah, f- yeah, for me, like I'm used to the same thing of like, hey, I'm used to these, you know, little cars, you know, Miatas or whatever, sure. like, you know, that's kind of, you know, my WRX and like on track, it's very like raw and you know. So yeah. for me, one of the like biggest issues I had in the sim is like, I felt like my senses were mismatched, if that makes oh, sense. Okay, okay. I felt like, like, you know, I was doing one thing here, but the screens around me were doing something else. And like my eyes were just trying to chase the screen versus feeling like I'm in control of something. And like, and that's why I've you know told people before is like I appreciate people that you know get into a sim as they're older and are able to you know stay in the yeah. sim and do long sessions because for me if I stayed in there for a few hours I was like you know my stomach's going to start to turn or something just because my my mind and my eyes yeah, sure. didn't feel like they were on the same wavelength. Yeah,
0: yeah. When I was down there, Kevin Harvick was in the Ford sim, getting ready for the Roval, which is the uh, infield road course at the Charlotte Motor Speedway and a lot of bumps. And you were just hearing this sim, you know, trying to, uh, simulate the impacts of these things. Boom, boom, boom. And the cockpit was this. And yeah, it was impressive. He was in there for a long time and there was a balcony yeah. I could watch. And I was looking down going, yeah, I wouldn't last very long in that at all. Yeah. No
2: way. And that was, that's, that's, <laughs> that's the other thing with these tools is that I think the younger guys that grew up with that, if you train yeah. your brain from a young age to expect that, I think that's why they're successful in this. And I think it's also partly why there's maybe less mechanical sympathy for cars. Obviously, if you're a professional driver, you're there to drive. But I think with older style of, you know, growing up with cars or whatever else, you know, and just kind of not necessarily even having to wrench on your own stuff, but just having kind of that mechanical raw connection to a car, you had a better feel what's going to happen versus now if you grow up, you know, doing sim racing like at home and then getting into a professional sim and after becoming a development driver and then getting out on track you may not have the same feel for it. So a car getting damaged, you're just desensitized to it. And so if you hit the wall, like, you know, I'm sore and it hurts, but I'm going to just get back in and do it again. Like, there's not that, you know, that whole cycle of like the traditional route of like, hey, this hurts and I broke all this stuff. So let me reconsider next time. Yeah.
0: Now they're like, wait, I thought I had turned on the no damage setting. So even when I hit the wall, nothing other thing happens. Uh, So at Daytona, it, 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 you know, when you go to these super speed races, in my view, I, of, I often get a new respect for the drivers. And, you know, as a, a weekend amateur, you know, we like to think we could be professional. And then when I go to these races, I'm like, oh, wow. I mean, th- how fearless they are. At Daytona, where, like we said, they're foot to the floor. They never lift. They almost never use the brake. They're, they're so close to each other. They're touching each other all the time. There's a huge wall. The banking is so steep, you can barely walk up it. And some, you know, dum dum in front of you makes a mistake, and no fault of your own, you're spinning and hitting the wall with incredible force, you know. And a lot of people say, "Well, it's not real racing; it's this pack racing." But like at the same time, I don't like to admit it, but I can't take my eyes off either because it looks like catastrophe is <laughs> any second. You know what I mean? Yeah.
2: It it takes a high level of skill. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh yeah. The the, the 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 what I try to describe to people that have never been inside one of these cars is, imagine you're on the highway behind a tractor trailer and you feel that buffeting. And instead of backing off, you decide to touch the back of the tractor trailer (laughs) and go three times as fast as you typically go on the highway. And that's what it's like racing on a super speedway. So on a highway, you know, you might be doing 60 or 70 miles an hour. Here, they're doing 200. And instead of having that 15 or 20 foot gap, they decide to touch. And you do that for multiple hours. And there's all these, little details and incremental things that you can do in order to stay in the pack. But there's also things that you can do that's, you know, very big risk reward scenarios where, hey, if this works out, I'm going to be the leader. Or if it doesn't work out, I'm wrecking myself and 10 other people behind sure. me. And, you know, so there's all these little things, but things change very, very quickly. And I've been fortunate to, you know, have the opportunity to work the dates 500 and just to see how quickly things can change. You know, oh, yeah? in a split second is is just you know is 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 very very rough. But what, do, what had, are you going to
0: be? What are you going to be watching for this weekend? What's on your mind?
2: I mean, for me, it's it's going to be the duels is going to be the first thing I watch. What are those? The single lap, uh, The duels are the races that happen uh, Wednesday night prior to the Daytona 500 to set the starting order for the race, and they're also a knockout race if there are more than forty entries, which I think they're they're going to be. 41 or 42 based on predictions right now. Okay. But basically, if you want to make it into the race and you don't have one of these charters or franchises, you have to do well in the duels or just set a fast qualifying time. So single lab qualifying at a super speedway is impressive, but it doesn't really make and much, much. Uh, no. correlation about the race. But the duels, because you're doing the same actions, uh, are going to show you who's fast on track, who's fast in a pack. And for me specifically, it's going to show which pit crews have made advancements over the off season because during the duels. They, they, you know, they'll have some some small pit stops, usually two tire changes, just because of tire wear at Daytona and the length of the duels. But it'll it'll just watching their motions and what they're doing. And fortunately, I have a data stream from the track, so I can actually see their times uh, and just seeing who does well and who doesn't. And then if you know if there are mistakes, that'll kind of tell me who's going to do well in the 500 because that's going to become very important because in the 500 it's very specifically a pit crew involved strategy. Uh, going back to this draft. What do aspect. you mean? So in the five hundred, talking about these OEM affiliated teams, all the OEMs try to pit together because at this point they've designed their bodywork to be compatible. So a Chevy can push a Chevy the best, a Ford can push a Ford the whoa, best, whoa, and a wait, Toyota wait, can push wait. Toyota the best.
0: Okay, this is something new. I didn't realize. So let's say you're Roger Penske, he's got two cars. Yes. Uh, Ryan Blaney and uh, Joey Logano Ford So three and who
2: Austin Sindrick yeah he's he's got Austin Sindrick in there too so oh, three he? cars uh, for, for yeah. the 500 yeah. he
0: needs to up his performance this year I think but okay that's that's another thing yeah. okay so those cars are designed to run next to each other on
2: the track well behind each other at a super speedway yeah so that's no be, there's, there's 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 multiple things so if you look at so the Toyota Camry Uh, has an updated car this year yeah and if you look at the camry from last year versus the camry from this year you'll see that the front of the bumper has been moved down and it's been flattened out because last year the front of the bumper was very sharp so when they would touch uh it wouldn't match up as well as say like the the camaro or you know the mustang because Uh they have flatter front and rear bumpers and it's interesting to see how production car designs are now connected to what happens in NASCAR, especially for cars wow. that are primarily marketed in the US. So the True. Toyota Camry is, you know, its biggest market is here. Yep. So CalTE, you know, the design center for Toyota in California, the same people that are wor- working on the street car designs are also working either on the race car in conjunction with the race car design team. So it's, it's kind of a funny thing that we've come to a point now where, you know, these cars aren't homologated like GT3 cars. But there are a lot of components that maybe end up on the production car because of the latest requirements from NASCAR with uh, how bodywork has to be mirrored between the Cup Series and the production cars. So what you see on the production Camry now may not have been initially intended for it, but it could have been a tweak that was made just so they could use it in the Cup Series.
0: Oh, my gosh. That is uh, that's so wild to think about, you know, because the cars are so divorced in mechanically from a street car but yet they figured out a way to keep it connected, which of course the manufacturers want and NASCAR needs to make manufacturer money. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty fascinating. So you'll be looking to, I mean, what you brought up was super fascinating because what you're looking at as a seasoned watcher, somebody like me who's not that seasoned, I'm thinking about, okay, who's going to stay in the top five? Because if you're not in the top five, you're going to get caught up in a wreck and it doesn't really Mm -hmm. matter. So that's sort of where I'll be sort of, Concentrating my me, but what you're saying is, it's like how those pit crews are performing over the race is going to have a bigger impact on the
2: outcome than almost
0: anything else. Is that fair?
2: Well, it, it'll be a big factor. So, the drivers oh. themselves are also, you know, going to be obviously a huge factor. So, what's going to happen in the duels is it's going to be kind of a practice run for all pitting together. So, Chevy on their instant messenger system will be like, Hey, guys, in two laps, we're all going to pit. And so, all the Chevy crew chiefs. Uh, will queue up to get their drivers down. And obviously on track, they're not all going to be together, but the goal is to have them all pit together, all have their pit stops happen in a similar window so they can all come out together because the nature wow. of the pack is the more the more cars you have that are together, the more energy you have. And then Ford will do the same and Toyota will do the same. And that's one of the biggest advantages for Toyota gaining some cars by getting Legacy Motor Club, which was a Chevy team last year, is now a Toyota team, is now they have, more cars for their pack at Daytona. So that's what I'm gonna be watching in the duels is how wow. well all these people work together because that'll tell me how they'll do in the 500. And the pit crews are gonna be kind of the difference maker of, you know, they might all come in at the same time, but whether they go out at the same time is, you know, is gonna be the change of like, whether you do well or don't do well. And it's uh, it's, it's gonna be like a thing if you get stuck, if you're one car left off from the whole pack, they're not gonna wait for you. And now you're stuck between, your OEM you know, friends and all the other OEMs, but you're not part of either pack and you're just kind of left out in no man's land.
0: Bosy, it's gang warfare is what it sounds it like. It is,
2: it's, it's, it's fascinating. <laughs> and that's, you know, for me, last year I had, you know, the opportunity to work on the number 84 with Jimmy Johnson and the, you know, Daytona 500. Yep. And just listening to the radio communications of all this stuff, like ramping up to get to that point. Yep. It's like, you know, the crew chief and our engineer, they're talking with Jimmy and just figuring out adjustments and things, but it was a lot of, all right, this is what Chevy's saying. This is when the other Chevys are coming. And it's basically when Hendrick's coming, all the other Chevys are coming. That's kind of, you know, how a lot of this stuff works in some of these big races. But basically I said, all right, looks like, you know, our, our OEM partners all agreed we're coming in two laps. And then two laps later, is you know, pit this lap and all the Chevys just drop down <laughs> and get onto pit lane. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's, yeah, and it's if you watch for that, you'll see it in the duels, and you'll see on the 500. But you'll see all the Chevys f- pitting together, all the Fords pitting together, all the you know Toyotas oh. pitting together, and it's going to be a game of which drivers can do it successfully, where they can come off the banking and down onto pit lane because they're all mixed in with the other OEMs that are all still going full speed, and then which pit crews can execute well on pit lane to get out because that first step is very important because. Drivers can spin out or they can, you know, go from yeah. the banking down to the apron and not do it well. and Or they can go too fast on pit lane, which is the other thing now is everybody's sure. trying to get within a tenth of the speed limit for pit lane. Sure. So a lot of guys. And they have to do it. There's no
0: automatic. There's no autopilot no. for pit lane speed. No. They have to do it on themselves. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So there's, there's, there's no pit lane speed limiter like we have in sports car racing or in open wheel racing in NASCAR. What they do is they, uh, they do speed checks. So during the practice session and right before the race, the first lap, they'll go down pit lane and they'll look at their RPMs to see where they hit you know, their speed limiter. And that's what they'll try to remember. So if it's, you know, at, you know this gear at 3,200 RPM, they're going to go for 3,180 <laughs> and try to get oh in there. So if the speed <laughs> limit's, you know, 50 miles an hour, they want to be at 49.99999 or whatever, sure. just because uh. that might be another potential spot but it's also oh an opportunity gosh. for chaos. So there's like all these little elements, you know, that people are like, hey, this looks like they're all just on the throttle going 200 miles an hour. Everybody's just following everybody. But no, like there's so much that happens and so many minute details that make a huge difference. I'm getting exhausted just thinking about it.
0: I mean, it's kind of impressive that they all do it. Okay, well, on the radio during these races, how much bitching is going back and forth? I, God I damn think, it, that's some blah blah, 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 Do they do that? Yeah.
2: I, I think I think it depends on what happens. So there is there is some of that. I mean, I have run the NASCAR side. You know, I worked with Jimmy, who is you know a multi-time champion, a seasoned driver. So and yeah. you know his race last year was more for fun, just with his new team and just getting used to it. So there wasn't maybe as much as you might hear with other drivers. But working in other series and listening to the drivers, you know, when you get cut off or when things happen, like you know they get very colorful. And for us, yeah. like last year, I think. With two laps to go, you know, there were two packs and like our with where our pack was, we we're you know, bouncing between like tenth and fourteenth, I think. And you know, there was an opportunity for you know a decent finish. But with two laps to go, there was you know two cars in front that got into each other and spun and wrecked our car. And I believe he was a little bit colorful there as wow. you know, he saw the oil pressure drop from the engine and smoke start to come out, just as you know, we're about to reach the finish line at the Daytona five hundred and you know, have a decent finish for, you know, a brand new team and basically a group that was assembled from just, you know, kind of random people that, you know, they knew. Right.
0: Yeah. But, I mean, that's that's racing, right? Highs, highs are high, yeah. lows are low. I mean, yeah. there, there's yeah. a lot of um, is so we're going to be watching for the pit crews. We don't really know who's going to be strong until that's the fun of this first race. They're all going 200 miles an hour. And, you know, this season, it, it, to me, it's going to look a lot like last season the drivers that were strong, Logano, Hamlin, you know, Christopher Bell, William Byron, they're going to be strong again. I mean, is there any, I was a little surprised that this new team, Trackhouse, which year one outperformed its budget and experience, you know, didn't really have a great second year. Do you think a team like that can rebound or are these better funded teams, you know, out and ahead in a way that's going to be hard to catch up?
2: So my first, first thing I'll say is that Denny Hamlin's probably going to have some really good momentum to start the year. So even though the Clash isn't a points-paying race, doesn't because he won for the Clash championship, but that momentum, you know, you just, it's you know, it, it helps move the thing, move things along.
0: And wait, also, wait,
2: wait. Let's if you don't mind, unpack that a little yeah. bit.
0: Explain because you're working on this. You're working on the Lexus sports car team that just ran the 24 yes. Hours of Daytona a couple of years ago, and you mentioned something called momentum that you hear in sports. Tell me how it feels. You guys had a great year last year. You won the championship. Was that a momentum win?
2: Uh, well, there there was a lot of momentum. So, you know, I work on the Vassar Solid, Lexus RCO GT3. We yep. won the GTD Pro Championship. And for us, it all started kind of at the beginning of the year. Because the nice oh. thing is, once you have some positivity in, this theme, in the team, it's just about reinforcing it versus, all right, let's go back and see why we finished 18th and what we can Uh, do to get back, you know, to get to 10. Here, it's like, all right, we won this race, or we finished first, you know, second, third, whatever. And our goal now is we got to finish in the top five to get points to be able to build our championship, you know, and all this other stuff. But even if it's not interconnected, coming off from something uh, like a championship, or even a win in the clash here, there's just uh, this positivity and chemistry that's on the team. And that's, something that's not as tangible as these numbers we talked about, whether it's drivers or pit crew or whatever, but the the chemistry makes a huge, huge difference. Just knowing from my personal experience working on this Lexus and with basically the same group of people since 2020, a lot of the stuff now is in the nonverbal communication and oh. even the stuff that happens outside of the track because the drivers, when they come in for a pit stop, know what to expect from us and we know what to expect from them. So if I'm running in front of a race car, I know where the driver is going to stop and, you know, I know that he's not going to hit me. And they also know that if they're about to go on track and do 170 miles an hour or whatever, that the wheel that I put on is going to be tight and the brakes that we change, are going to do well. And all those little things connect back. So I know that Denny Hamlin has that clash win. And looking at the rosters for the pit crews, I know that the pit crew they, uh, that he's used last year, all of those guys stayed. So he does have a new engineer and some other people. But that kind of in-race group is very much the same as last year. And, you know, that win combined with having the same people and that chemistry there, I think uh, I can see Denny kind of, you know, going on, going on, you know, kind of ramped up season here to start at
0: least. But didn't his team let him down in a critical spot last year?
2: There's, I mean, there's. They had a bad pit pit stop
0: in one of those critical pit stops and somebody didn't tighten the wheel and. Yep. He was, was diplomatic little, about it. He said, "Look, these these folks put me in more races than they took me out, but yeah, it hurts." Yeah.
2: yeah. that was that's see that's the thing with Joe Gibbs Racing and kind of why I think that they're going to have a better year this year than they did last year because yeah. Joe Gibbs Racing when the new car came out, they decided to do an unorthodox pit stop choreography where they had all the guys run out in front of the car versus having some run out in the front, and run out in the back. Uh, basically, what they did with that is they were able to do some record-setting stops, but they weren't as consistent as the traditional stops. Oh, and so they did that. They did that for all of 2022, and they set the records for pit stop times that they'll probably hold for a while. But because the pit stops moved so quickly that you know from a wheel getting tightened to a jack dropping is maybe three to four tenths of a second. When mistakes happened, they were big. And so last Got year it. they decided to shift back to this traditional choreography. So Denny's crew and all the other Joe Gibbs racing crews were basically on year one of this choreography versus all these other top teams are now in year two because they decided to stick with the traditional layout versus trying something new for a whole season. So this okay. year, yeah, now they're on a more equal footing. I know. Headstuffs.
0: I love hearing it from you. I mean, that is something I had no idea about. And that's fascinating on its own. On the other hand. <laughs> Like, this is what it's come to. It's like everybody runs in front of the car instead of one, two people running front, two people running back. And now that's deciding races. That kind of bums me out in a way. You know, because did you know there was a story I was I wrote 10 years ago that I was. uh, I mean, I was uh, probably unhealthily fixated on um, because I loved it so much. And it's this uh, old, old turnpike tunnel in Pennsylvania that Chip Ganassi turned into a test facility. And I was yeah. like, Chip, please, 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 I got to go with this tunnel. Can I photograph the tunnel? Can I see it? There'd be this pause, and you go, "What tunnel? Like, Why are you play with? It? Do you know what I'm talking about?
2: I, I I remember reading that story, and I'm very familiar with the tunnel too. Are you? It's That's what uh, I was wondering. Uh, so everybody knows uh, about it now, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And there's a so now now it's a game of similarly, but now it's a game of simulation resources and. What teams oh. cannot, can can hide from, or what teams and what OEMs can hide from others? So NASCAR actually had to come up with rules last year to limit budgets for what teams could build in their facilities and what teams, you know, could build outside of the OEMs because teams with the big budgets started replicating the simulation facilities of the OEMs in their own buildings just so they could have more time, oh, and they started hiring people specifically for that and. We'll go back to Denny because he's he's and that's that's you know he's always the most interesting one because he ended up uh, NASCAR did this i racing thing and had a bunch of young kids compete virtually yeah. and had teams kind of sponsor a couple for you know for for each series and the one that twenty three eleven sponsored Denny after the series ended actually decided to hire him bring him in house and now he's his real racing simulation driver so during the week when the engineers have whatever oh. stuff they come up with. He's just sitting in a sim all day. They send it out to him and he just drives it and tests it and gives them feedback. And that allows them to be more efficient because they're, you know, drivers that are on the track on Sundays don't have to try 50 different combinations because this guy will bring them two or three that he thinks are good. And then they can decide on a setup based on that.
0: So Denny has kind of like a a racing version of a food taster.
2: Yeah, pretty much. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Okay, that's kind of amazing. Oh my gosh. Like yeah. this is what I exactly what I hope for. I, I'm so glad you're here for all this like behind the scenes detail that you know, as viewers were not really looking into. I didn't even know that they were hiring professional sim drivers to help them do their testing. So yeah. all this stuff is pretty crazy. You know, the one thing that uh you hear a lot of talk about, um, and Danny Hamilton, by the way, his, he has a great podcast, Action Center Mental, Detrimental. Like, cause he does not hold back. Like he he says, "I'm gonna say what I'm not supposed to say," and they fined him fifty grand last year for saying something he wasn't supposed to say. I mean, I don't know how anybody works for him. He is relentless. But it, it the podcast is pretty funny. Um, and he was a big focus of this new NASCAR TV property called uh, Full Speed. And I think it's uh, five or six episodes. It's sort of uh, NASCAR's version of Formula One: Drive to Survive, and it just focused on the championship run up the playoffs essentially for
2: nascar i watched it did you get a chance to see it i saw it yeah and i saw i yeah, watched the whole thing in like you know two or three days just because it's interesting and yeah uh, for from my, from my person yeah from my perspective being somebody that's inside the sport knowing you know a lot of the people that were involved personally i think they did a really good job of kind of just displaying more of the personalities more of the emotions and stuff because with a lot of the stuff becoming kind of formulaic these days the press conferences, the TV appearances, everything becomes very structured. So seeing people outside of their element, I think, will be a benefit to everybody else. And it's you know, and it's it's an interesting, interesting thing to see which people allowed the cameras in, which people didn't allow the cameras in, because that's kind of the 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 PR that's culture the of NASCAR and just professional racing in general. Is everything needs to be very structured, very scheduled, and you can tell, uh, you know, that certain people that got more screen time you know, got it because they allowed people into their homes or they allowed them into leisure activities outside of the track. So it's very interesting to see like all that stuff balanced out. But hopefully, you know, they continue to build on that and, you know, maybe expand it. So, you know, you can do more episodes and kind of make it even more detailed because I think it'll be beneficial.
0: Yeah, it, it was a good reminder to me. Like uh, I've heard, you know, I've hung around enough race teams and owners and, you know, they'll say these things every once in a while they'll drop these interesting nuggets. They're like, well... Hey, listen, if I can get a driver who's a tenth of a second quicker than everybody else consistently, and that costs me another two million bucks, he's like, to get the car a tenth faster is going to cost me five. So that, that's a deal. And so these, these top-level drivers, whatever intangible thing that they have, that they have, they have a talent. And mm-hmm. to watch that show, <laughs> and like, Denny's got this mansion on, on the lake outside of Charlotte. He's got a helipad over the dock where he lands his helicopter and the helicopter takes him and they all had some version of this. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you, you sort of like, it's, they, they walk this really fine line because most of these drivers are really close to their local dirt track, wherever it Mm -hmm. was in the Southeast, Mm -hmm. you know, they sort of have that blue collar ethic, but yet now they're also living like formula one drivers, but they don't act like for, I mean, I just kind of like it. It just seems like they're half of them are like, they act like they hit the lottery. You know, they're like, yeah, you yeah. believe this? I got a helicopter. Like, <laughs> <laughs> So and I like the show, yeah. although I don't think it's going to yeah. do what F what the Formula One no. show did for me. I mean, it, it's not going to really bring any new fans to NASCAR.
2: You know what I'm saying? Or are you think? Uh, well, my thought is, I agree with you. I don't think it's going to have the same effect as Drive to Survive. And yeah. I think a lot of that's just on the personalities and just how they display them. And I think, NASCAR is making a positive step in that direction with this show, but in the drive to survive, you have these young guys and each one of them has a different personality and there's an attraction to their personalities or to their appearance or whatever else that brings people in of like, hey, these are like movie stars, but they just sit inside race cars. Where on the NASCAR side, you know, you have, it's like, hey, these are guys that might be working at, you know, the local tire shop, but now they get to drive a race car. And you know, yeah Yeah. and they're like you know and that's that's always been the kind of the connection with nascar i think while the mansions and the helipads and all that stuff may seem a little ostentatious i think it's a step in the positive direction to make these people seem larger than life like they do you know based on the show
0: yeah i mean it's one thing i've never understood about nascar especially um tony stewart his nickname is smoke and um really talented driver, really outspoken, and really funny. You never know what is going to come out of that guy's mouth. And they would take him after post-race interviews, and you just knew half the time he would listen to his PR people, he'd shut his mouth, and every once in a while he's like, I don't care what you say, that guy's a bleep, a bleep, a bleep, a bleep. And he's no talent. And it was the most entertaining thing. And I often wondered, like, okay, if you're Shell, which is a big sponsor, the more he talks, the more the camera's on him, the more your logo's right there just let them go but mm-hmm. that that there seems to be a, an incessant uh tug of war between they all understand that but then they don't want anything uh offensive out and it's just funny tension and and the show kind of got that a little bit i thought which was good but the end was way too syrupy for me mm-hmm.
2: yeah no I, I agree with you and i think that's a lot, a lot of that stuff is i think is kind of self-inflicted it's not even the sponsors telling them to do something because A lot of the kind of comms, PR people in the industry all basically come from like two or three different agencies. And all the younger people now trained under the last generation and was trained under the last generation. So there's very, very few people from outside that come in and, you know, do PR and comms or do, you know, marketing strategy or whatever. So... I think that a lot of sponsors don't mind, you know, people that are, you know, brash and loud to an extent, Yeah. Uh, you know, as long as it's somewhat productive where, you know, you're getting screen time for whatever you're doing. But I think they would. Uh, just knowing, you know, kind of having the bid on both sides of it, being on teams and also doing, you know, media stuff, whether it's writing or TV or whatever, knowing how they kind of manage these things, I think a lot of it's just PR and comms trying to play it safe. Because everybody, you know, doesn't want to be the one that had that one mix-up, but because they're playing safe, I think that it's a disadvantage to their teams and to the series in whole. And just because they're, you know, making everything look vanilla, and yeah. that's that's, I think, you know, you know, going back to you know the actions that name and the podcast and all that stuff. I mean, yeah, that, that is- you know, the name, and he ended up living up to the name because he got fined under that actions that to stock car racing rule, but that made him a bigger name. And if you look at if you do you know any kind of social listening on NASCAR the drivers you'll see very often the sentiment of hey i hate you as a driver but i love you as a NASCAR personality you know please <laughs> yeah. keep doing this podcast i'm going to cheer against you but please keep doing this podcast because i'm going to keep listening and i think oh that, yeah you know, i mean denny yeah, terrier. i mean he's yeah, just yeah that's that's it. yeah
0: i think it's really fun and i i like you know one thing that i don't think people really appreciate the drivers that get to that level, it's not that they're just brainless people behind the wheel. Some are, rare. Usually, they're really, really smart. Like you and I know some drivers that there's just not a lot upstairs. They just got something that they can drive. That is, I find that really rare. Most of these guys are yeah. really, really smart, and they're thinking a million ways. They got a lot of good things to say. So that's what makes it fun.
2: I think. I think. Well, that's that's a good 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 point. I always talk about driver bandwidth, and I yeah. think. You know, most people might not think about that, but one good example of driver bandwidth and just high intelligence and you know competitiveness is Jack Hawksworth, who's you know one of our drivers on the Lexus. So in that scenario, like when we have a practice session or a test, one of the big differences uh, that you know you might see from working with somebody like him versus with somebody that may not have the same bandwidth or expertise is how much information you can get back and analyze. So for us, when we practice. While he's on track doing, you know, 170 miles an hour at Daytona in preparation for the Rolex 24, he's not only driving the car uh, and trying to pass people and do other things, but he's actively giving us feedback. Wow. Uh, And that's like doing two things at once. But not only that, one of the biggest things for me is that he's also giving us suggestions. So when he knows that we're about to end the run, we're a couple of laps away, he'll say, hey, the car did X, X, and X, and I would really like to try this wing adjustment or this air pressure adjustment or whatever else. And that's one of those intangible things that you don't see anywhere, but that makes a difference because for us that are waiting on the wall, I know that if, if he's asking for a wing adjustment, I need the wing adjustment wrench. If he's asking for this, I need this. Sure. And with our preparation, I can have the tools ready. He can pull in, you know, we can have our tire tech checks, tire pressures, and we can immediately go to making the adjustments versus in other cases, you have, might have a driver that can't do multiple things at once. They'll have to pull in, talk to the engineers on the intercom, and then five or six minutes later, the engineers will be like, all right, let's try X. And so we've wasted you know, seven or eight minutes out of a 30 or 40 or 50-minute practice session versus this scenario, we're out in and out in a minute and just keep doing the thing.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, Before we go, I want to
0: talk about one of the things that I I love about racing, and you're a really good example of this. It's such a meritocracy. And what I mean by that is, like, if, if, if you can get in the door somehow, and maybe you'll tell our listeners how they can, and then... It's all up to you. They will mm-hmm. give you more to do if you're capable. Because I don't think you're, you don't have any sort of mechanic certification or anything like that, do you?
2: No. Not at all.
0: So, and, you, and you're a mechanic actually... on a team that won the sports car champion, like the second tier, like a really big championship last year. They are, you have a big responsibility that nobody really talks about, right? And I'm not trying to blow smoke up your dress, sure, but sure. you know what I mean. And that's what I love about racing. You get in there. You show you're competent.
2: You're willing to work hard. The sky's the limit, right? Absolutely, and that's for yeah. me. You know, 15 years ago, I was working in tech. So, like, I like tinkering with cars and it was kind of a hobby weekend thing. But I was working yeah. in tech, and then 2008 layoff stuff. I went to work as a mechanic, just doing street cars, just because I needed to make money. And oh, really? then, yeah, I mean, that's you know, that's how I got back to working on mechanic stuff. And then, you know, when we met. 2014, 15-ish, whatever, you know, yep. working on, uh, you know, the that MX-5 with the Baruts and all that stuff. That was really my first experience on working on a track car. But I was Your like, way. this is cool. Yeah, yeah. I was like, this is cool. I like it. So I was like, so one of the things I decided, you know, after those first few weekends is I got some books, I got some videos. I was like, I want to teach myself race car dynamics so I can be better at this. And then eventually... Oh, wow. Uh, you know, I went to a small touring car series and said, hey, do you guys need help? And I would just basically show up the tracks and ask people. And so I went to the touring car series, started working on cars, started winning races. And then it, it just kind of grows from there. For me, you know, uh, the people that I was beating in the touring car series were racing in a support series in IMSA. And they're like, hey, you know, you're beating us here every week. Can we hire you to come work for us over here? So you you, you know, you know, in
0: this lower, like there's some between a, an amateur racer and a professional racer, especially in the road race, it's gray. Most of them are yeah. paying. You know, it's yeah, like yeah. somebody pay, hires a crew. They're always looking for good help, especially if it's free. So you went and mm-hmm. said, hey, I'll,
2: I'll just volunteer here. Is that how you did it? No, I mean, almost. I basically went to this team. I was like, hey, you know, I, I want to, you know, work on this car. You know, what can you guys offer? And they're like, we don't really have much. I mean, I think he's, he, at the time he said that he had budget to pay me like 100 bucks a day. At the track, So I would make like three or four hundred dollars to spend, you know, uh, a whole weekend working like 12, 14 hour days. That's a lot of work. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But I was fortunate enough, you know, to be able to have success there. And that kind of was a springboard to the next thing. And every time that I would work on a new car with a new crew, I would find ways to improve my own performance and to make myself more familiar with the car or even with its most recent. Uh, team that I've been with now for four years, how to make myself more sellable, even outside of my mechanical abilities. So being able to talk about cars when we have sponsors that visit, I can be one that can be trotted out in front of sponsors and hey, they're comfortable with me speaking to them, explaining what we do. But on a performance perspective, it's a a big, big, big thing for me to find little tweaks here or there. And working on the Lexus team, when I started in 2020, the first pit stop I ever did in a race, we had a 23 second tire change. And at Rolex last week, it's 14 seconds. So, you you know, and we've done, we've been down in the 13s, but we can consistently now change four tires in 14 seconds. And that's something that I have personally worked on. And it's also improved my health because in order to be faster, I had to eat better, I had to work out. And from when I started on the team to where I am now, you know, I dropped 40 pounds and that, you know, had a great impact on my personal health, but it also made me more marketable for my team because they're like, hey, we can see where we're gaining time and everybody right. else that's on the team, it pushes them to be faster. So as uh, a group, we get faster.
0: Yeah. Well, it's a fun thing. And, and you've certainly, um, you know, found a way for yourself and anybody can. I mean, I think that's what I wanted to just communicate to our audience. If, if, if you're really passionate about something, you were going to work your, you know, you know, what's off. It's not easy. <laughs> it's a lot of weekends, but I've always say what I love about racing is nobody's there because it's a job everybody loves it and uh you know we saw when you're when one of the lexuses was crashed out early at the uh, 24 hours of daytona a couple of weeks ago and they cut to you and you, you were like doing that version from that movie cars where you're like th- throwing the pit stop around it was so funny like your 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 reaction just saw like all the work that went into it and for yeah. one little mishap by somebody else to take the car out was upsetting and uh I don't know. Maybe I should tell you now. I saw you there and I was like, oh bozy. I'm so sorry. I felt bad. <laughs> but that's
2: that's that's the passion of it. You know, you have the, yeah. the highs and you have the lows. And for me, yeah. you know, we like talking about the small details. I spent maybe two hours adjusting the front fascia on the car, like how the bumper fits to the grill and how it fits to the bumper. Oh. just tweaking little screws and stuff. So that's like one of the small details, you know, from three months of preparation. But wow. if you think about something like that and then In a a second, somebody putting a wheel off in front of our car just wrecks that and wrecks now the next 23 hours of this race. It's, you know, that passion immediately boils up and, you know, heats up and comes out. But also talking about, you know, teams and sponsors and stuff, I I know that with our team and our organization that we don't have some of those strict rules that we may, you know, talk about some of these other teams. So I know that I can react in a natural way that I don't have to be thinking about that in the back of my mind. That if I react in a certain way, that I'm still going to have, you know, my team backing me. I'm going to have, you know, our partners, Alexa's backing me and our sponsors. And so I know that I can be myself and, you know, show whatever's happening in the moment. Yeah, I think that helps people connect to what's going on on the track versus me just, you know, sitting in the back, being pissed off and not saying anything.
0: Silently crushing your spanner wrench. <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: Pretty much, well,
0: yeah. It's really fun to talk to you. Anything else, uh, you know, for the Daytona 500 this week that the listeners should know about anything else? I mean, you've kind of covered quite a bit. Did I miss anything?
2: Yeah, I think it's exciting. And it's, you know, it's the Daytona 500. So it's, you know, like the Super Bowl and NASCAR, basically, as they say. So it'll be a huge event, but it'll also be a dress, dress rehearsal for the week after. So if you do like the Daytona 500, you'll get a very similar product the week after at Atlanta because now that's kind of a super speedway configuration. It's a slightly smaller track, but yeah. same type of asphalt, same type of engine package. So it will be easy to connect the two from, you know, what happens in one place to what happens in another. And yeah. then it's all going to ramp up to all these other fun types of tracks. But I think I'm pretty excited to see it. You know, and I, I enjoy even, you know, just watching and observing it in addition to, you know, all the little things that I, I might be involved in around it.
0: Well, I, I look forward to following you on Twitter and Instagram, or X, I'm sorry, and uh, seeing all your updates. So, bozy thanks so much for your time
2: i appreciate it thank you for right. having me
0: take care everybody uh if you like this podcast we sure appreciate a rating sharing it anything you can and uh we'll see you next week on never stop driving